few months ago. Uh, it, was, it was snowing unusually uh, harshly in, uh, in London, and I missed not one but two trains. Um, <laughs> the irony wasn't lost on me, of course, <laughs> that I was coming to talk to you about foreign reporting, and I have covered several wars, but I couldn't get myself to Oxford uh, because of snow. Um, I thought I'd tell you first a little bit about how I got into um, foreign reporting. Uh, I grew up during the civil war in, in Lebanon in the 70s and, and 80s. Um, and there was a, a place that always fascinated me. It was called the Commodore Hotel. Um, that is where all the foreign correspondents were. I mean, if you now meet you know, a group of foreign correspondents, first of all, everybody covered the Lebanon war went on for 16 years and they all stayed at the Commodore and they had you know, great stories to tell. And so when, you, when you're growing up in a very politically charged environment, you're, you know, you're naturally drawn to, uh, uh, to conflict and to trying to understand the conflict. And this is what fascinated me about the Commodore. I, I always felt like I wanted um, to be there. Um, of course, unfortunately, uh, I didn't get the chance to do that. I was still too young. I had to go to university and I ended up going to the US uh, because the situation was um, too dangerous in, in Lebanon. And after that, I worked for Forbes magazine, although I would have loved to have come back to Lebanon uh, right away. So what ended up attracting me to, to the FT um, was another war. Uh, and that was Algeria. There was a position at the FT in 1995 as North Africa correspondent. Uh, the war in Algeria was raging. It was a very, very difficult war uh, to cover uh, because there was a succession of, of massacres and nobody essentially knew who was killing whom. Uh, we would go to massacre, massacre sites and even after being there you know, for the whole day, after talking to people, you'd come out with very little knowledge of who had actually killed. Different people had completely different stories. It was a very, very strange uh, conflict to report on. Since then, um, I've covered many conflicts and many stories from Iraq to Iran, uh, Syria, uh, Israel, Palestinian territories, and I've also seen all the sort of twists and turns and you know the tragedies and and the hopes um, in the Middle East. I want to talk to you a little bit about what it is that um, attracts people to to foreign uh, reporting. Whenever I interview someone at, at the FT, someone who wants to join us, um, I always want to know do you want to go abroad? Do you want to report? Uh, from from the ground, and I'm always, you know, naturally uh, more interested in people who don't want to just stay in London um, and stay glued to their to their desks. Um, so why? I think there are there are several reasons. Um, what is very special about foreign reporting is that you get to bear witness to to history. Um, Take Iraq before Saddam uh, Hussein's um, overthrow. I traveled to Iraq a lot long before 2003. Um, 
and I was able to interact with, with Iraqi society, always very, very closed, but you know, if you see people over, over time, they start to open up a little bit. And I could, um, and I could see uh, that society had become so corrupted uh, that the system had essentially corrupted society. Um, everyone was encouraged to, tr to essentially steal and try to go around the rules because everyone was subject to very punishing sanctions. Um, and I knew that that would not be something that could be resolved after, after the war. Um, a lot of correspondents who were just parachuted in to Iraq could not have seen that because very few people knew Iraq before Saddam Hussein. And the way that the conflict evolved and that society has evolved has to do with the oppression that people felt um, under Saddam. We're very surprised today that Iraq has gone through so much turmoil. That it didn't surprise me, not in the least. Um, of course, there was a, you know, the fall of Saddam was a very, very special moment. People were euphoric, those who were for and those who were uh, against the war. Um, all you had to do as a foreign correspondent at the time is just go out onto the streets. The stories literally came to you. You didn't have to look for a story. You could just stand at a street corner. And there you had stories. Um, you mentioned Iran. Uh, Iran uh, in 2009 during um, the protests. These were street demonstrations that were the scale was unseen since uh, the Islamic Revolution of, of 1979. Um, I happened to have had a visa, which I hadn't used, and so I just got on a plane and they had to let me in because I had a visa. Um, but in fact, they were, they had decided that they didn't want foreign correspondents to actually report. And so they said, fine, you've arrived, go to your office, we have an office. Um, in Tehran. In fact, the FT was the first uh, foreign news organization to open an office in Tehran 10 years uh, earlier because we could see that Iran was going to be uh, such a massive story. Anyhow, they allowed, you know, they allowed me in, said you can't report, but as it happened, of course, I did report and I did go out every single day and, and wrote uh, many stories. One of I think the most thrilling moment when we're talking about bearing witness to, to history is um, the reporting of the fall of uh, Hosni Mubarak. Um, I was there the night that he fell in, in January 2011, and I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never seen a whole city celebrating. Um, I remember taking a walk uh, after midnight uh, to Tahrir Square. You had families and children all, all over the place and, you know, children mounting uh, on tanks, uh, people singing and dancing. Uh, I prefer not to think about this today, given the turn of uh, events in, in Egypt. Um, but I also had the opportunity to be in Saudi Arabia after 9-11. Um, if you recall, at the time, the big question was, why do they hate us? That's what Americans uh, asked themselves at the time. Um, and I felt very privileged to have been able to be in Saudi and to be talking to people uh, who were telling me why they liked Osama bin Laden. It was quite, 
shocking. It was for many, you know, for me at the time, unbelievable. Uh, but he was then very popular in Saudi and amongst all sec sections of, of society. So to go back to, you know, why foreign, why become a foreign reporter? Why foreign reporting? What is the significance of foreign reporting? Um, I think for a lot of people, it is also about the adventure, the excitement of discovery, of being the first somewhere, of sharing in uh, euphoria as well as in tragedy. Uh, but also, it's also about the passion that you developed as you develop as a journalist uh, about a story that matters. Uh, a foreign, the foreign editor who hired me at the FT, um, I remember very clearly my first day, and he told me that you can never be attached to a story. You always have to be objective, but I want you to be passionate about the story. And I've always believed that to be true. Now, sadly, we, you know, foreign journalists are uh, a dying breed. Uh, you're all here, you're, you know, you're studying the uh, evolution of, uh, of the media industry. And you know, journalists who've had careers like mine um, are, are now wondering whether others will have uh, similar opportunities. I, I don't think I'll be telling you anything that's terribly new that we've gone through several revolutions. I have over the past 10 years at the FT and even just over the past three, four years, uh, seen uh, a very deep, very fundamental transformation in the way that we operate. Um, it would have been unimaginable to me just a few years ago. So this is not just a question of, of the change in our, in our business model, which has been revolutionized. Um, the FT was very early in charging for our content. Um, and it, 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 was a, it was a brilliant decision um, because everybody else has followed us uh, since then. And it is the only way that you can, that you can survive today. So more of our revenues today come from subscriptions than advertising. Um, but we are also having to adapt to the fact that social media, uh, all the platforms have had a very negative impact on our traditional business model. Google and Facebook um, account for the vast majority, some 80, more than 85% of digital advertising revenues. So what are, what are the implications of this uh, for an organization like, like the FT? Um, well, unlike the FT, because I'll get back to that, many other organizations have had to close their foreign bureaus. It costs a lot of money to run a foreign bureau, uh, to run a foreign bureau properly. Um, a few years ago, I think maybe five years after the Iraq war, we had an office in Baghdad that had two correspondents, two assistants. Every correspondent needed an assistant for you know, language, fixing, uh, two drivers, two guards. Uh, yeah, so when I was, when I was confronted with, uh, you know, make some, when I was told make some choices, uh, I, I was forced to say, yes, we have to close down uh, Baghdad. But sometimes you close down 
and then the story becomes bigger and then you invest again. And since then we have had correspondence in, in Iraq again and we've had correspondence coming in, in and out a lot. Um, another implication I think is that increasingly um, newspapers, news organizations have turned to freelancers. Um, fr many freelancers don't have insurance uh, they're not really paid particularly well. Uh, many of them are very young. They think, I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to go to Syria. Um, and I have always been extremely concerned about this. And we at the FT have avoided using freelancers. Um, there are a few freelancers who are very experienced. Um, we have, for instance, from time to, to time, as you probably have heard of her, Jane Araf, who worked for CNN for a long time and spends a lot of time in, in Iraq. That, to me, is different. But trying to replace uh, foreign bureaus with freelancers is the way that a lot of organizations have gone. And, and I think there are serious pitfalls in that. Um, Another implication is broader and, and potentially more, more serious. The biggest change, I would say, in, our, in the way that we operate now is that we know our readers. We know who they are. We know when they read the FT. Um, we even know their ages. And we can tell from their names their gender. Um, we track how stories do on a second-by-second second basis. We now have a dashboard called Lantern, which, which we developed internally. And it tells us um, who is reading what, where, uh, whether they came to a story via social media, via our, our website. Uh, what else are they reading after they read uh, a story? So these are. this is a tool that, of course, has given us um, uh, an amount of information we would, which we would have never dreamed of in the past. It is extremely useful. When it comes to some stories, some of the foreign reporting that we do, however, it makes us think twice. And, and I'll explain why. If you're looking at what people are reading and what people are reading most, there are two stories that you can never beat. Anyone want to guess what they are? No. Is this the Financial Times? No. Trump and Brexit. You put Trump and, or Brexit in any headline, it flies. Um, and of course, journalists are aware of that. So. One of the things that we are often thinking about at the FT, because we care not only about our coverage of the US, which is hugely important, or our coverage of Europe, but we care about Africa. We care about Middle Eastern stories. We care about Southeast Asia. We care about Central Asia. Uh, we have excellent reporting from, from Central Asia. We have a correspondent whose job is to cover Central Asia. So, is there room left for the great reportage from Lagos or Myanmar? This is a real challenge for us. 
Um, I, I'm going to give you an, a very recent example. You heard about um, the recent, the suspected chemical attack in Syria, in Ghouta. A few weeks before that, Ghouta was under siege, it was being bombed. And the, foreign de the world desk asked for uh, our correspondent in, in Beirut, Erika Salomon, to uh, try to get in touch with people in Ghouta and write a 1,000 word piece, which she did. She spent days finding people. Um, she wrote a story, it was an excellent story. It got 1,000 hits. 1,000 hits is very little. So the editor who commissioned the story came to see me and said, what do I do? I said, nothing, you don't do anything. We keep running these stories because in this context, our role as editors becomes even more important. We have to use the data, but we also have to use our judgment. We have to combine the data with what we believe. What we believe are the stories that should also be told, even if, if at that particular moment, people do not appear interested in it. And you know what, sure enough, two weeks later, Guta became the biggest, the biggest story. When we started looking at, um, uh, at data, we had an office in, in Cairo, and that was a, a, a few years before the Arab Spring. Um, had we gone by what we were seeing then, we would have closed the office in Cairo. Uh, but we didn't close the office in Cairo. We knew that yes, Egypt may not be the biggest story now, but it could become the biggest story. And I think our coverage from Cairo, if I may say so myself, was excellent. <laughs> Um, but you understand what I'm, what I'm trying to get at, is there are, you know, we, we, you have to think constantly about not only what the data is giving you, is giving you, but also what you as editors believe should be, pro should be offered to, to the reader. Um, so there is another challenge for, for editors and for journalists today. Um, there's a view that it has been gathering momentum, that there is less of a need for correspondents to be on the ground. Because of the ava availability of information on social media, because of citizen journalists, because of Instagram posts uh, and live videos on, on Facebook, um, that reach us much faster than a correspondent can write a story. Um, I was reading recently um, this excellent piece in the New York Review of Books by uh, Lindsay Hilsom uh, from Channel 4, and I just wanted to share this with you. Um, she writes that younger viewers appear to be less concerned about the face or even the voice as they watch news on, video, on devices, often, often with subtitles rather than voiceover. When it comes to conflict, the trend is towards raw, dramatic video shot by lo local activists and journalists, showing bombs exploding and children being pulled from the rubble, often filmed by rescuers with helmet cameras. On the whole, the online viewer does not seem to mind that none of this is mediated by an on-the-spot reporter. That too, I think is, is problematic. Um, but I think these are excellent tools that we need to use. 
in, for, for example, in 2009, in the Iran protests, they were invaluable. We really would not have known, even when we were there, because the ability to talk to people was quite limited, even when you went out on the streets. It was very important for us to be able to gather information from social media about networks that were developing, about slogans that were going to be, uh, to be chanted, and also about arrests uh, that, were, that were being made and about people who were being killed. But I think these are all tools that should help us in our foreign reporting, not replace the foreign reporting. At the FT, in fact, we are, you know, we are still as committed as ever uh, to foreign reporting. We have, I, I, asked, um, I asked our managing editor's office yesterday just to give me the latest figures. We still have 160 <coughs> overseas staff in 35 bureaus. That means that one third of our editorial staff are based outside the UK. And we also have about 20 stringers and super stringers on, on retainers, um, on retainer. It was, it's, it was always said, by the way, that the FT had more foreign correspondents than the rest of Fleet Street. I'm pretty sure that still holds um, today. I wanted to give you an example of how we now use um, a combination of data, uh, audience engagement, um, and multimedia to report on a foreign story. Uh, we won uh, a few weeks ago a British Press Award for a series on uh, the Europopulists. It's a series that ran for the whole year. Our attempt there um, was to explain to the readers what was going on politically in Europe. Um, what was driving the rise of populism? And it, it, was, it was a truly groundbreaking project. Um, I'll give you some examples of how we worked. The data journalist worked with the national statistics agencies of France, Germany, and the Netherlands to compile a database containing the key characteristics of more than 50,000 small communities. We were guided by this information and that's when we sent, so we decided where we wanted to send correspondence based on um, this analysis. We sent correspondence, some of our strongest and most fluent writers, in fact, to talk to voters in towns that were most em emblematic of the, of the rise of the far right. F uh, we went, for instance, to the poorest village in the Netherlands um, and to the a town in, in France called Béziers. What the data allowed us to do um, was to find the right place to report, something which we would not have been able to do in the past. In the past, we would have gone, you know, we would have just assumed this is a town that's voted far right in the past and we'd have, we would have just gone there. But we actually picked the towns that were, that where there was the highest vote, for instance, for, for the far right. Um, and we had another, innovative element to it. It was a unique audience engagement project which gave a voice to the readers as well to tell us their stories about the rise of populism in their communities. So 
we set up collaborations with European newspapers um, in the Netherlands and in Italy. And we did these digital call-outs that we now do with um, to readers. And then they gave us their stories. These are the stories, this is the experience of readers. Um, they sent them to us, we translated them, we put them in English on our website, the other publications put them in their own languages. Um, and this was very ambitious, but it is an example of the type of rich journalism that we can do in our foreign reporting. A couple of other examples. I wanted to um, examine last year um, the controversy over the veil in, in Europe. I didn't choose to write a magazine piece. I didn't choose to write a, what we, you know, we call a big read. I did it through a 20-minute film. Um, and we often do that now. We can tell stories in different ways. And we try to explain to reporters that if you're doing a film, there's no need to then replicate this and write a story. It is enough. Uh, even if you work for the Financial Times, it is enough to just do it in one medium. It doesn't have to be uh, translated into all other medium that are available to the FT. Uh, another example, after the coup in Turkey, um, as you probably know, there was a, there was a purge, uh, and a lot of people were sp swept up in this purge, people who had nothing to do with, with the coup. What we chose to do is um, an online project, none of this was in print, an online project of testimony from people who were arrested, from families of people who were, who were arrested. So we just had them speaking, essentially, with uh, pictures of, um, of their family members. So, again, and, I will, um, and I'll conclude here, I think that we are facing many challenges. I think we've been able to uh, weather them at the FT to maintain a foreign network. But we always have to be focused, creative. Um, and I think that foreign reporting remains to me as invaluable as ever. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rula. That's really excellent.